thank you very much for coming to The Behavioural Investor. Today we've got a special guest from Breaking the Market, Matt, and he's going to talk about his blog, his investing, his philosophy and approach to investing. Will, you've joined us again. It's probably 5am over where you are. You're looking fresh and, and ready to go, so thank you. So hi, Matt. Hi, how are you? Glad to be here. One of the things that got Will and myself really interested in investing is the massive potential that can offer over multiple generations. We did a back of the envelope analysis of investing funds around about 35,000 each year over multiple generations and achieving a certain reasonable compounded growth rate from that. Over a hundred year period, we ended up seeing that you could, through multiple generations, generate about a billion dollars in capital. Now, that's how, how we initially got into it. And we noticed that your analysis looks at trends in the markets, how you can benefit from multiple stances. But as an initial spot, how did you first start off in investing and getting an interest in the market? I first started off back in college. I took some finance courses when I was getting my MBA. So that, you know, if you take courses learning this and you think you know a little bit about how to now evaluate stocks and evaluate the market. So I've messed around with it some some of my roommates. Uh, I lost interest once I got, and got, out, got out in the real world and started doing my own thing. But uh, in, in an engineering career, I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer by profession, so I'm not a professional investor. During the great financial crisis back in 2008, I started paying a lot more attention because it was in the news. I also living, I live not too far from Washington, D.C., uh, and we had a housing bubble and a lot of my friends were buying houses and it was kind of interesting to see that. So I got a little wrapped in more into investing uh, from that perspective. Uh, I found it to be very intriguing from a challenge perspective, kind of similar to the way you guys look at it, like long-term, how do you build your wealth? How do you uh, plan for the you know plan for the future? I just spent a lot of time reading stuff on it and learning. I had at least enough background having taken some finance courses. I knew what most of the stuff was and I just thought it was a really neat challenge to try and figure out how to uh, compound your wealth and grow as fast as you could uh, and stable as you could. Sometimes speed isn't always the most important thing. And I just kept poking at it and learning as much as I could. Yeah, I've heard the same about speed. It's, it's almost that people's desire to get rich quickly reliably stops them actually getting rich. So it's nice to hear you have this attitude. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you have time, you don't really need to rush it, I don't think, because if you do, you're risking having not much when you actually get to the time you want the money. So uh, to me, it's, you know, it's a bit of a tortoise in the hair type analogy. Um, hopefully you're not moving at a tortoise speed, but you certainly never want to take any breaks in the middle uh, and naps. You're better off just continuing to compound smoothly over the years. Do you have any investing or intellectual hero that helps you along your path as an investor? I didn't come to my realization exactly by following couple of these people, but I found them in the middle of the path after I started working my mind through this. The two come to mind, one's John Kelly, who's not exactly an investor, but back in the mid-1900s, he developed the math behind compounding wealth or growth or bets, whatever you want to call it, as fast as you can. So he was an engineer also, and he was just kind of, I think, mainly doing it out of the intrigue for the problem. But he did it around horse races and tried to figure out if I think I have an edge on a horse, how much should I bet on this horse to end up with the most money over time? So, you know, you repeat the bets on the horses and 
multiple times over and how do you end up with the, the most wealth? That of course can be applied to almost any gamble. So he determined that math. When you figure it out, it's extremely powerful because then you realize that how you size your bets, how much you're putting on each gamble matters a lot. And that if you're too aggressive, you can actually end up far worse in the long run and most likely end up far worse in the long run. Some people have taken his concepts, not many, but taken them to do some pretty amazing things. One of them was Ed Thorpe, who is probably most famous to people for inventing how to card count in blackjack. So he's the one that, that realized that you can actually find an edge in blackjack if you're paying attention to what cards come out of the deck to know when the deck is in your favor. And once he figured that out, he knew John Kelly. So he knew about the math uh, for bet sizing. And he took that to Vegas to try and beat the casinos. There's a really good book about this called Fortune's Formula. I recommend that to anybody. It's very, very intriguing. It talks about both of these, both of these two gentlemen. So, you know, that's intriguing, but then he actually went on to being an investor and he was able to produce between coming up with some very good formulas for options trading and then using the Kelly criteria and how he sized those bets. He produced 20% return for 28 years. Pretty impressive. If he was trying to get to a billion dollars, he could have gotten there in about 50 years. So you would have cut your timetable in half if you could pull something like that off. I wanted to follow up on that. So you've got one example of someone that's been able to apply the Kelly formula successfully. I think you need to be quite confident in your probability assessment of a company, though, for that to, to, to work. Has there been any other, I don't know how you would test it, back test it, um, but has anyone, have you, for yourself, in the application of the Kelly formula, have you kept a record to see how accurately you've been able to assess the probability of success in a, in a stock. Are you talking about that with me me personally or uh, well, just other people? Well, either one, either gen- generally or, or yourself personally, because uh, that's the, the key to it. Anyone can put in the right percentage in terms of capital, but it's having been right with your prediction in terms of the probability of success. It's Yes, it's very challenging. So I personally don't trade individual stocks with my strategies. I'm trading an S&P 500 index, so the U.S. market, United States government treasuries and, and gold is where I focus. Part of the reason I do that is because it's, in my opinion, a lot easier to predict somewhat accurately returns on that than you would trying to pick an individual stock. Individual stocks, as you said, are much trickier. And in my experience, you're generally better off assuming the return on those is pretty close to equal that it's hard to say one one stock is better than the other. I think it's fine to obviously pick stocks that you think are good, but once you get them in the portfolio, it's hard to just try and assign a return to them and then use it to, to, to Kelly bet a strategy. Part of that's because the stocks often move so correlated with each other too. So that makes the, the bet sizing very difficult, which is why when I, I did write a post about kind of using the stocks in the uh, Dow Jones and the S&P 500, and I explicitly said to just equal weight them and then rebalance them as often as you can. Essentially, if you equal weight something, you're generally speaking saying that it has similar properties to the others. And that would be, if they do have the similar properties, that would be the Kelly optimal, you know, compound growth of that, uh, mm. of those stocks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, and that's, that's a nice, at least mentally easy way to apply it. It takes all the, 
a lot of the legwork out of it, I, I would think, or, or the anxiety in trying to come up with a specific stock analysis. One or two, the sheet that we initially developed, and I think you may have had a chance to have a look at it, Matt. Did you spot any, and the, the sheet I'm referring to is the one that compounds over 100 years, uh, right. any sort of faults in, in that approach? So I, I think, one, I think it's a really cool experiment. Um, I like kind of grand visions like that, thinking through long-term generational wealth type exercises. So I was intrigued by it. It got me to listen to a few few episodes of your podcast right away just to see what you know your all's thoughts were and how you were working through that. One thing that struck me early on, and I think your formula was a little bit off on this, but I don't fault you because it's very complicated, is you, you, you're adding in $35,000 a year, I think, uh, additionally into the investing plan. And the math of calculating the compound growth and how the variability grows over time when you are adding in new money every single year is very complicated. It makes it a lot harder to predict and figure out where you're going to be in the future. It brings in a whole lot of sequence risk. A lot of people think of sequence risk when they retire, because if you retire and the market goes down a you know 50% in your first year, it's often trouble for people because then they have to pull money out and then they have less to compound after that because they actually had to pull their life living expenses out in the front. Sequence risk happens on the growth side too, in that when you're adding money in, you'd much rather the gains be on the back end of your 100-year time frame. You're going to end up in a far better situation if you have a really good final 30 years than a really good front 30 years and an average 60 years after that because you're compounding a lower amount up front. So because of that, your spreadsheet's going to have an extremely wide range of outcomes. And your uh, one of your previous guests, Lee Caldwell, I think kind of brought some of that up when he was talking to you. Initially, yeah, Ben and I had a more naive approach where we didn't really take into account the volatility. I think usually it's around 15% annually, at least in the S&P 500. Yeah, that's a good proxy. So I haven't, I don't think I've sent you anything on what I'm about to say next. Is Lee the one that added the volatility or is he, did he, did he, he added that in there after you guys talked to him or you yes. added that in there? Yeah, he took a really simple approach and added straight 15%. And then I played around with varying it within a range of zero to 15%. But that was also naive because I found that no, it is generally 15% on average. So it could be even higher than that. So it's better just to go for straight up 15%. No, I, I, I think your model's fine. I think it, it, it does what it, it's meant to do. And I think it's very close to it'll over a hundred years. I think it'll end up very close to reality. <laughs> the kicker though, is when you add in that volatility, it reduces the compound growth. So you guys have an average growth rate of 7.15% in your spreadsheet, which gets you to your million dollars. So the yeah, problem is- the only is, reason it was 0.15. <laughs> right. When you, no, it's fine. It's, uh, but when you, when you, when you, instead of just doing 7.15% over and over and over again, and instead you do 22% up and then what are you about 8% yeah. down, that reduces the compound growth that you're going to be expected to get because 22% up and then 8% down is- about 12%, a little, little bit more than that, but it's about 12%, which is more like 6% a year. It's a little bit more than 6% a year. So because of that, I think that you're most likely going to end up short with the way your spreadsheet is set up. Right. Um, you're more likely to compound at 6.1% growth than you are at 7.15% growth. The 50, 50, I, I think the 50-50 breakpoint on your, spread, on your formula is about a little less than $400 million dollars. 
with the way you have it set up today. So you've got about a 50% chance of ending up less than $400 million and about a 50% chance of ending up more than $400 million. So the chances of you ending up short of your billion dollar goal in a hundred years are pretty high. I mean, you could with either some good sequence risk or just good rolls of the dice. But I think if you're going to get there, you need to plan for a little bit higher return than what you've got in there right now. Okay, well, that leads on to the next question. You wrote a blog post about how to rebalance more frequently. Would you like to explain what that blog post is about and as an addition to our approach? The blog post I wrote was just a think piece about the way that the S&P 500 works as just a cluster of stocks in one big portfolio. It first looked at the way that if you just held a bunch of stocks and you never, ever touched them. And so in your, let's just say in your hundred year plan, you just bought a hundred stocks today. And instead of buying the S&P 500, let's, or let's say you bought 500 stocks, you bought the 500 stocks in the S&P 500 that exist today. And then you never, ever bought anything else. You just literally only bought those, those same stocks, whatever great companies come in the future, you never bought them. You never rebalanced. You just, whatever they were today, you let them run. I back tested that over about 70 years and found out that you ended up about two, I think it was two and a half percent worse. I honestly don't remember the number off the top of my head, but I think it was about two and a half percent worse than if you just held the Dow Jones or the S&P 500. So what that means is, is rebalancing your portfolio and keeping it somewhat evenly weighted uh, is very useful. It helps you, your wealth grow in the long term. So if you take that to an extreme, you can instead of just taking what the S&P 500 gives you or, or the ASX 200 or whatever index you're dealing with, you could just buy the stocks that they have and then own them equally flat, which as I said earlier, talking about the Kelly criterion, if you make the assumption that every stock has similar return profile, that's the optimal way to grow your wealth. Now that, that's not necessarily a perfect assumption, but it's not an awful assumption. I've got a couple of questions then. The first question that comes up is an observation from the value investing course that I did a couple of years ago where they said to try to minimize your transactions because of fees and taxes. So let's start with that one first. Yeah. So if you try and do what I just said yourself, it would be problematic. If you try and buy 500 stocks and every single month or something like that, rebalance them yourselves, you're probably going to lose a lot of money either in fees. I mean, there, there are no fee trading platforms out, out here now, at least in America. I'm not entirely sure if the rest of the world has all the same uh, Robin Hood type products that we have, but you're going to lose that. But a lot of people also forget that there's bid ask spreads. So every time you buy and sell a stock, you may not pay a commission fee, but you're going to lose a few cents just on the fact that you have to buy at the ask and sell at the bid. So there's a few pennies every single time that you're going to be giving back to someone. And if you're giving those pennies back every single month, they're going to add up over the years and over the times. So no, I if, if you're trying to say that what I said there is not that implementable by yourself at a scale of that size, you're right. The takeaway to it for me is twofold. If you're going to own a handful of stocks, and if it's, let's just say it's 20 to make it more manageable, you're better off trying to keep the portfolio semi-balanced. If you let it run into a situation where you have one stock that's you know 50% of the portfolio, it's a riskier situation. And sometimes it will work yeah, out that, wonderfully. That's the main point of yours. Yeah. So right. it maybe yeah, it might be nice to run another calculation where you look at maybe a, like a, a half yearly rebalancing and whether right. that has a, has a an effect that's worthwhile. Oh, it yeah, it does. It does, and it, it's. If you have a hundred year mindset, like you guys do, 
then it's almost definitely to play out well. If you only have like a three or four year mindset, it may not work because you can have like the, the stock market for the last five years, the, the winning stocks have kept winning. You would have been better off just writing Facebook and Amazon and those kind of companies yeah. up and up and up. But over a hundred years, that's not very likely. You're going to get your, your trends. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. And so you're better off to keep the portfolio fairly balanced. To go back to your original point though, there is one product out there that's somewhat like what I described. It's an ETF called RSP, which is an equal weight fund for the S&P 500. There may be other equal weight ETFs of other indexes, you know, around the world, other places. I don't know, but the equal weight S&P 500 ETF rebalances every, every quarter. So not maybe as often as I would like, but it's still pretty often. And if you look at its return profile, since it started in 2000 and uh, three, it's returned about a percent and a half or so per year, better than the S&P 500. There we go. That's actually a lot in the long term. Yeah. Now it's not done that over the last, you know, four, five, six years because of the effect that I talked about. But if you look at it over the last 17 or 18 that it's been around, it's uh, it's up about one and a half percent a year. And that doesn't cost, the fees on that are not through the roof. So you could theoretically- They don't just... erode that effect. You just told you just right. It's it's, an, it's a yeah. standard ETF fee. It's I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's not uh, it's not a gouging type cost. Our initial interaction actually prompted a lot of investigation, at least on my side. And thanks, by the way, for highlighting our local hero index, the ASX 200. Mm-hmm. Van Eck is a, a provider of ETFs, I think actually around the world, but including in Australia. And they have an equal weight ETF, which extends, I think it's it's the top 80 businesses in the ASX 200. So it doesn't include, I guess, small caps, at least in, in the Australian market, definitely uh, in the context of the US market, uh, or probably all of them are small caps, but at least you get some exposure also down to some mid cap uh, companies. How long, how long so, has it been around for? I'd be curious to compare it. Let me have a quick look. I also don't even know what the weighting scheme of the ASX 200 is off the top of my head. Sorry, but uh, uh, right. I'm assuming it's similar to the S&P 500 in the US, but it may not be. Yeah, let me just, so there's a, a blog post actually called How Would a Mathematician Invest, which I think really is kind of the theme of this interview as well and should be a theme of our investigations, how to fine tune and, and get our investing right over this long period. I'm just going down to the bottom where I know they mentioned. So it's MVW is the, the ticker. Let me put it into MVW. It's the yeah Van Eck equal weight ETF, basically. How long is that? I'm gonna... It has been around since 2014, March. Yeah, so... Not a long time. That's the that approach that you just talked to, the rebalancing, um, the magic formula approach, because uh, Greenblatt talks about you know, selecting the lowest PE ratio, I think it was, shares, and then rebalancing every year. And he does note the, the point that you talked about before, Will, around tax, and you're going to get less capital gains tax implications if you wait a 12-month period, so you do want to factor in that. I think it's quite a famous one, so a lot of people have looked at it, but I was just wondering, have you looked at that at all now? Not really. I'm familiar with Greenblatt, but no, I haven't uh, I haven't read any of his books. You're saying that basically the industry has provided products informed by this approach, Matt, and they are equal weight ETFs. Is that right? Because I was thinking institution like BlackRock or Vanguard, with presumably their better trading fees and things like that, 
maybe they could release a ETF which rebalances daily. Yeah, I think that would be neat. I haven't heard of anybody talking. I don't. That's pretty fast. I I, I think that you'd have trouble finding someone that could pull it off daily, Even especially with like stocks. Yeah, I think you'd have to do a lot of education to get people to buy into it too. I I don't think a lot of people <laughs> think about some of this the way I do, and they just think quarterly is enough. But but yeah, I mean, there's people that get close with with some products out there. And if you find an equal weight product and, and all you're worried about is the stock universe, I personally think you should mix in some bonds and some other things because I think there's benefits to doing that. But there's a few products that are at least in the neighborhood trying to maximize returns like that. And it, I believe if you have 100 years to, to run on it, that would be the way to go. That's yeah. actually, I, I hold I hold RSP in my 401k accounts. I think yeah. most of them I do. I'm noting that down and we'll put it in the show notes as well for people who are interested in applying some of the things that you're talking about. So the next blog post that at least I became very excited about was Repetition Economics, the story of the hunter, the mammoth and the wolves. This is because it reminded me of evolutionary psychology, a primer by Cosmides and Tubi, who are two of the leading lights, if you like, in the field of evolutionary psychology. So was it intentional on your part to invoke the so-called environment of evolutionary adaptiveness in your piece? Moreover, our compounding sheet is all about long-term repetitive behavior. So could you comment more on the challenge of marshalling uh, the capabilities of a sentient creature, pardon the uh, poetic <laughs> license here, with ancient instincts against the compounding challenge. Okay, I'll tackle the first part of that first. <laughs> I, uh, I was actually very happy when you guys uh, replied to me on Twitter about that post. That is definitely one of the most, my favorite posts. I actually, I wrote that first. I wrote that before I started the blog. Now, I didn't write the details of it. I, I write a lot of things in rough form and then I did find them out later. But I wrote half of that in the structure and framework of it before anything. It's a big reason I even started the blog in the first place. So yeah, the evolutionary part was totally on purpose. I think a lot of I'm glad we got it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think a lot of the uh I think a lot of the behaviors we have are they may seem strange a little bit, but they're not necessarily wrong. When people are worried about losses, to me it's perfectly logical because losses hurt the compound growth rate more than gains make up for it. So when you talk about loss aversion, like if the world works through compound growth and it's built around that concept, which I, I think it kind of generally is, then it makes perfect sense. We would have evolutionary been built to prefer that. Like it would have been built into our DNA effectively. I mean, like we would be born with these An concepts instinct. and these, yeah. yeah, like that is our instinct. It's blatantly to not like losses and be fairly risk averse when it comes to things that are really dangerous like that. And so, you know, when, when you look at the world through geometric growth and compounding and all the different avenues that that can entail, it doesn't look so weird that people act that people act the way that they do to me. And so, yeah, that, the, the whole, the blog, I mean, that, that post was just about the fact that if you think about how we evolve, our behaviors are logical and they're not necessarily wrong. I mean, if you can, you may be wrong a bunch of times getting out of a stock that the bottom's falling out of it because it rebounds up and you feel bad. But as long as you get out of it once when it goes to zero, you're better off in the long run. You can be wrong five times and you can feel like, oh, I, I sold too early and it was a mistake. But as long as you know you did that the sixth time when it went to zero, you, you're better off for making that choice holistically over the long, long term. So like, I, I feel like some of the, it, it's something I think sometimes we try and prevent ourselves from feeling is okay. And I don't necessarily think those feelings are bad, but to your second point, 
I think the way to handle though, a lot of the feelings that we have gotten from evolution that don't really work well inside of an investing environment is to deal with a systematic type investing approach. You interviewed a pilot in season one that talked about checklists. And the one thing that I found that's really useful. So my, my whole strategy is systemized. Like I don't really, I don't look at anything and go, what do I think this means? What should I invest in tomorrow? It's, it evaluates the numbers. It evaluates, you know, where the market is and its volatility and it's up and down. And it says you should invest in these areas and building a system. And I know why my system does it, what it does. It helps enormously in feeling okay about what to do when there's a pandemic raging around the world and the stock market's down 30% and you, you, you don't know what to do. I mean, it feels like, how do you know, how, how do you know through history or what to do in that situation? There's no way to really pick anything. You know, I've went through some of that back in 2008 when we had the big downturn and I didn't know what was going on in the world. I mean, I, I didn't know enough about the, the markets to understand what, um, what was really happening internally. I just knew stocks were collapsing and I didn't really want to be a part of it. That, of course, you know, you, that would have been a horrible time to sell out, but it's really hard to fight those instincts. But if you have a system that holds you stable, you don't necessarily, you don't feel the uncertainty of knowing what to do. You've effectively gone through the mindset of what am I going to do? in this situation, built the rules for, to deal with it. And I mean, it can be to me as simple as just saying, I believe you invest in the stock market passively, 100% index fund and be done with it. And as long as you've researched it and realized that that is a good system for you and you're going to hold to it, it'll, it'll work. And you can, you know, in that case, you'd have to be willing probably to lose a little bit more than, uh, you know, just 30%, but your mindset will be strong and you'll ride through the whole, the whole wave. The way that I've heard it characterized is basically because of these instincts, we experience emotional overrides. So emotions are doing what they're designed to do, which is to override the more deliberative cognitive systems that we are capable of using. But those overrides can mean that we will pull out at the bottom in, in 2008 and destroy the compounding that might have been built up until that point. So your response or recommendation is basically to follow as best we can the repetitive um, pattern that's been laid out in Ben's compounding sheet. And as it says, just stay in an right. index fund. Yeah. And if that's, if that's your plan for trying to gain, you know, get your 7.15% uh, compound growth rate and you've thought it through and you're comfortable with it, then you just have to know you're going to hold the course. And you, I mean, you've got to have built that in your head up front. Mm, I do think, yeah. I do think too, this, this whole system thing works on both ends. It's probably easier to think about it from the downward side, but it works on the ups, upward side too. There's a lot of people who didn't get in the market over the last few months because they were worried about COVID. And of course, the stock markets have been going up pretty strongly around the world. And there's a lot of people that are going to finally say, you know what, I'm tired of being behind and they're going to chase it and they're going to go really aggressively in the market. And then it'll flip and go down and then they'll flip out. I mean, you have to be strong actually in your system on not wanting to like chase the gains when they're really good in front of you. In your example, right. if, if you were to just pick the S&P 500 and you see people that are only investing in FANG stocks, let's say, but you said your system was the whole S&P 500. If you look at that and you go, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm ditching the whole system and I'm jumping into the FANGs. You're probably going to get bit by jumping into FANGs and then the bottom falls out from from them. Like your exactly. system works You'll... up and down. You have to be willing yeah. to trust that the system will catch up later if it's falling behind now. That's right. The emotional overrides occur on the upside as well as the down. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have read The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. It's about Kahneman and Tversky. 
in their work you know, on behavior biases. There's a part in that book I thought was really interesting, and it was about doctors and how they studied doctors and they asked them how to diagnose patients. I think it was x-ray scans or CAT scans or something like that. And they just asked the doctors for checklists of how to do it. They took those checklists and gave them to random people. And then they ran the random people with the checklists through evaluating scans versus the doctors themselves, just doctors, here's the scans. And the people with the doctor's own checklist did better than the doctors themselves. And to me, I think that that kind of shows how if you do have your system and your plan in place, you're far better off building it and trusting it than you are just kind of winging it on the back of your instincts whenever whatever challenge comes up that you need to deal with. Yeah, I remember the same point being made by Toby Carlyle in the Aquarius Multiple. It's nice to hear this point being made by multiple experts. So it sounds then like you've solved the problem of someone in the ancient savannah running after mammoths and running away from wolves. Are you saying that what they should have gone into the field with was a, a checklist? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting take of what I just said there, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I don't know if that would have worked it against totally a mammoth. It totally makes sense. <laughs> they should be running around with a spear and, a, and a, maybe a, a few notches in certain positions on that spear. Right. <laughs> So what is an investment you recently made or decided not to make and why? So, I mean, as far as pure investing, I, I really only invest in my strategy now. I rebalanced it five hours ago. I really only invest in gold, long-term United States Treasury bonds and the S&P 500. And I try and keep them balanced between the two in the right ratios to mostly compound growth over the long term, but do so without uh, being too risky. I don't I don't want to experience a, too large of a drawdown. I've looked through the entire landscaping universe. I don't think I have enough time and or probably good enough to pick stocks. I can handle kind of adjusting my system and running with it. And I, I don't really buy stocks anymore. I, I used to, but I haven't done so in about three and a half, four years. I'm wondering if you're willing to share the secret sauce about the distribution in your portfolio between those three components, the S&P 500 bonds and gold. It's yeah, fine if you're not share. no, no, I'll share as much. I mean, I've shared a lot on the blog, so I'll, I'll share, I'll share a lot of it. I've put Google spreadsheets up there that give a very large chunk of how to do it yourself. You can look at the formulas that are there. The foundational idea is from the Kelly criteria. So the reason that I chose stocks and gold and bonds is because they're uncorrelated. So the rebalancing part that I talked about with stocks you get more of a benefit if you do it with things that are not correlated with each other. So correlations, if, if two things rise at the same time, they're correlated. If they fall at the same time, they're correlated. They're uncorrelated if one goes up and the other goes down. Usually United States government debt compared to government stocks is fairly uncorrelated. At least it certainly has been lately. So you get a bigger benefit from trying to run a rebalancing strategy if you pick those. So that's why I picked those three. I also picked only three because it's simpler and the transaction costs are much lower. And then it's essentially you monitor and try and predict the standard deviation. So the, the bounciness or the volatility of, of those three, and you try and monitor the correlations to see how they're moving against each other, one up, one down. And then you put them into formulas to maximize the compound growth rate. Right. And this is sounding like, because all we want to do with this, with each episode of this podcast is iteratively improve our uh, compounding sheet. 
So what is the compounding rate that you've seen from this approach? And can we maybe use it to move to the right of the long right tail that, that's shown in our returns histogram? Yeah, so it depends because you can get real fancy with this stuff if you start bringing in leverage, which I have generally not talked about too much. If you just look for pure growth and we just use stocks and bonds and don't even use gold and you just run those two against each other, I think if I remember correctly, I had a back test formula that was about 14% a year for the last 40 years. And it, but that, you know, there's a couple difficult drawdowns if you're going, if you're going after that tactic, but it, what it really does is it, it's pure stocks almost all the time until the stock market becomes very volatile. And when the market becomes volatile, so you've got more the 10% up, 10% down kind of moves, which 10% up, 10% down is not flat like it sounds like in your head. You actually lose a percent. It decides to bring in the treasuries because the compound growth rate, when you're that choppy, when you're that up and down, is not actually very good anymore. It's what we talked about with your 22% up, 8% down, and the fact that you actually lose a percent off of what you think. But it's that when the market does that, but does it to extremes like it did in March, my strategy in March just bailed out of the market because the volatility was so high. Not entirely. Yeah. It never bails out of anything entirely, but it dropped it down. By doing that, by staying away from high levels of all, just looking at the market and saying it's really volatile, so I'm going to own a little bit of treasuries at this point, which theoretically will go up at those times. You don't experience as many drawdowns that are as deep, and you still get a lot of the upside. Okay, so your contribution is both in terms of the compounding rate in our sheet, but also the volatility that we're trying to model in a very simple way. So when I said earlier that like, your current strategy as it's set up right now is going to 50-50 give you about $400 million. If you just left the same exact average return of 7.15%, but you cut your volatility in half, then I'm just making this up because I didn't run the numbers, yeah. but you would probably be closer to $600 million. Perfect. And it's, it's, it's not that you did anything to get better return. You just simply didn't jump as much. You just jumped like this. So with the little, the little moves they end up helping you. And so in real investing, to me, that means when you see the market get real jumpy, like it did in March, you just have to pull back on it. And there's formulas to kind of, if you can get a feeling for how volatile the market is, that can tell you how much to pull back on it. And sure. That's the, so what's that's, the threshold if we were to take a simplistic approach, like volatility of, because uh, it's an average 15%, right? So right. when would you get concerned or shift to bonds more? So if you're really just working on maximizing compound growth, you're going to want to, this is generally speaking, because every market's a little bit different, but the stock market generally returns about 8% a year or so, or, or so above the risk-free rate, above the like yep. bank account type rate. The equation is, is you take the volatility of the market and you square it. So just making this easy, if the market got up to 30%, volatility you squaring that's nine percent so if it got up to so because nine percent is more than the eight percent that's historically returned on the s p 500 at that point you'd want to be pulling back on stocks so it's it's that ratio between the square of the volatility and the return that you get that you think you're going to get off the stocks that determines yes. how much you own okay there's a nice rule so, of thumb so it. a really yeah really high level rule of thumb this is really really high level. I'm a little worried about just throwing it out there without even context. Right. But um, <laughs> if the mark, if the volatility of the market gets over 30% or so, and you can proxy that by just looking at the VIX, 
the volatility index, which is not perfect, but once again, we're very high level here. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, you could think that maybe it's a good idea to to lighten up a little bit. And the yeah. ratio you do that is actually the ratio of the eight percent to the volatility squared. So eight divided by nine is eighty eight percent. So that would mean about eighty eight percent stocks and about eleven percent bonds. Ah, that, that's nice. very back. That's very back of the envelope, but that's roughly how it would be. So like if sure, the volatility I'm... if the volatility got up to 40%, 40% squared is 16. So that's roughly a 50-50 portfolio. Okay. Your blog is about the fact that a regular Joe with the free resources available to him, for example, the VIX chart is available via Google. You could manage to set up these ratios yourself. Yeah. yeah I realize talking to people that I'm probably a little more into this than a lot of other people. So I don't really mind rebalancing it every week. And that's a bit of a pain for some people, but you don't have to do it every week. You really just have to do it when things get funny. And it's not okay to do in the States. You don't have too many transaction costs. You use Robinhood equivalent or are you? I don't use Robinhood, but I guess you could. I don't really know a ton about it other than what's in the news and it's in there all the time right now. Yeah, our transaction costs in the US are pretty good. I told you guys this on Twitter. I've got a lot of readers from around the world and I didn't realize there's a lot of differences in how people buy stocks that outside the US. And so I think some people do not have very good transaction costs. And that is something you have to consider. Taxes are something you have to consider too. And there's no way I can tell anybody about that because every country's got different taxes. We're blessed with some products, IRAs and 401k products that we can defer all of our taxes until we retire. So it's not really a concern. I don't, I think some other countries have those, but I know from talking to people, some countries don't. And I was a little surprised by that. So, and other people have yeah. different tax structures. Like I, you can, you can get around some of the taxes in my strategy. If you order the taxes properly, which is a bit of a pain, but if you plan on it, it's not too bad, but I've realized not every country has the ability to do that kind of stuff with their taxes. So my point is, is you do have to pay attention to taxes, but I, I really can't help anybody because I don't know other tax codes. You mentioned a Google sheet. Is there a, off the top of your head, a, a blog post title of yours or that would give us access to that sheet? Or should we just say, go to your blog and you'll find it pretty easily? The milestones post is got the most recent version of it. Uh, I forgot the full title of it, but I published it, I think in September. Okay, I'll find it and put it in the I just have a quick question. I saw on the blog that your split is 38% stocks, 38% bonds, and the remainder in the other gold and cash. Gold. Yeah, um, that's that's from a few hours ago. Just what was it roughly a year ago before coronavirus? That's Like you talk about like the week before, like oh, no, just kind of thing? The, the months before. Before coronavirus hit, was it widely different? Do you have 80%? So, so at this time, I, it's it's on there if you want to go hunt for it. But at this time, last year, I think it was probably 60, 30, 10-ish, something like that. Okay. Right. Back a lot from, from but, I mean, in the middle in the middle of coronavirus, it was like, it may have been like 20, 20, and then 20, and then 40% cash. It was, okay. it got really, really, really scared. <laughs> which I'm glad it did. But the simplest post on how to do this is one that I wrote actually about 401k investing. And that's the easiest one for anybody that doesn't want to get too deep into it to understand. Okay, great. So I'll have a whole list of your blog posts in the show notes and people can okay. yeah, go through. I think basically the message will be to read the whole blog. <laughs> 
physicians have solved the hygiene problem. We now wash our hands to prevent diseases. What about mental hygiene though? What do you think we should be doing now to improve our own mental hygiene, something that's equivalent to washing our hands? It's a good question. I think the biggest challenge with mental hygiene is just trying to stay positive, looking forward onto whatever you're trying to accomplish and whatever you're trying to do. I don't think I have any good real tips on how to do that. But if you can have a positive outlook and think that things are going to work out, maybe not how you think, but how for the good in the end, I think that that can help a lot. It kind of feels recursive to me a little bit that if you, it's the whole, if you think it can happen, it will. But if you're constantly doubting whether it'll work or that something good is going to come out of your actions, that you're likely to find something that's not good that coming out of the actions. I think sometimes too, you have to be willing to be open to it, not turning out the way you want, but it still may turn out very well. I, when I started the blog, I didn't really know where it was going to go. I just figured I'd start and we'll see what would happen. Now I'm talking to people on two other corners of the world. And I mean, <laughs> that wasn't a goal by any stretch, but it's pretty cool. And uh, I'm happy that it played out that way. So basically you're saying optimism is a, a form of mental hygiene. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of summarizing it. I, I think optimism is uh, is useful. You know, there's times it can be stressed and it's hard to stay optimistic. That's a nice message. Okay, there was another blog post you were wanting to make a few comments about to do with cooperation. Interested to hear what you had to say. Sure. So if you extrapolate some of the ideas that I've talked about investing with and rebalancing and trying to maximize compound growth, and you instead think of it a bit from a society perspective, you kind of come to the conclusion that it's society as a whole is likely to grow faster and a higher compound growth rate if the whole groups are cooperating together. Ole Peters at the London Mathematical Institute has done quite a bit of research on this concept, and he's got a, a really cool, well, he, I don't actually think he put this together, but a, a video display of the farmer's fable, which is two farmers working together and trying to share their crop load as they go through in time. And, you know, some sometimes they have good crops, the other one has a bad crop, but they, they kind of collaborate together and share when, when things go good for one and bad for the other. And in the process of doing that, together, they collectively grow faster. And so all of society would rise in and do better. And when you think about geometric growth and maximizing compounding, I think that it's got a lot of applications outside of just investing. I think if you think about just society 100 years from now, society 2000 years from now, where would you get to be? And where would you like to see how that they're, they're trying to live? And you hope that we could evaluate the way the compound growth works and realize that, you know, working together as a society, trying to kind of maybe not fully eliminate, but restrict the amount of wealth discrepancies that we have in the world that ultimately should help everyone, even even rich people, if you actually look at the math, like everyone is improved by it. Yeah, I really love this. It's like the ultimate, it's a real sign that you're an index investor when you're trying to apply the strategy to how society should be arranged as well. It reflects actually Buffett's first and second rules of investing. First one being never lose money. And the second one being don't forget rule number one. So if you are, I guess, in a way, spreading the risk or, or supporting each other or cooperating, essentially, it means that when someone is facing the risk of losing, if you're sharing your resources with them, you are basically giving them another chance, if you like. So this person doesn't experience that event. Right. And I think it, it works when the, the losing comes from being unlucky. It, if it's, it, it's not going to work out if you're just cooperating with someone that's not pulling their own load. But if yep. they're if it's not working out for them, mostly because it's unlucky for them, they're probably going to turn around and think it's going to be great. And you'd rather they be a part of the process going forward than uh, than having to just get unlucky and 
not help society in the future when they get back on their feet. Sure. The smartest and the most hardworking person who can contribute the most definitely wouldn't want them taken out of the picture through bad luck. Yeah. As you just pointed out then, trying to apply that to a broader society allows people to hide or their own way, as you pointed out. So humans as individuals often can behave, for lack of a better term, badly in groups, you know, it could be a, a protesting group and where individuals start to become violent or on a broader societal level, people just don't do as much work as what they should be. But I like the idea of it being applied in, in smaller groups, communities. So at the most sort of smaller level would be in the family, for example, at that level, or even some sort of form of partnership. It's very applicable and it's a lot more transparent around what people are pulling their own load. So we've got one final question. It's a bit morbid, but maybe we can get something out of it from you. So here we go. Human sacrifice is no longer common. It used to be a part of many cultures around the world and was banned, for example, in Rome in only 97 BC. So what is something that we routinely do now, which will be looked upon in 2000 years as highness? Can you save us 2000 years of horror, Matt? That is a bit morbid. I think I'm actually going to go back to what I said earlier about cooperation part and trying to help people who are down on their luck, just not working out for them as well. I don't actually think that equates to human sacrifice necessarily, but if we are going to be in a good, strong place in 2000 years, we have to get over that hurdle. I don't really see how we, uh, we advance as far as we're capable or potential of until we, we pull that off. I like to believe that it's a guarantee that 2000 years that's going to happen, but maybe I'm not being optimistic here, but sometimes you look at the path of history and it doesn't always work out that way. I mean, 2000 years ago, Rome was about on the verge of collapse and it wasn't a good stretch after that. So hopefully we don't go down that same path. You're right. At this sort of time scale, we are looking at the life of and death of civilizations. If a civilization is anything, it is how do we do things like broad scale cooperation and yeah, leverage the power of people working together on a broad scale. So yeah. Okay. Well, based on the theme of what you've been saying, it sounds like what people should do is seek to minimize volatility. So thanks for making that contribution to our sheet, Matt. Yeah, that is a big theme of what I believe. I think everyone should do what they can to keep the volatility as low as they can. It helps you sleep at night too. It doesn't just help the returns. Yeah. And that'll, again, help people with this primary problem of trying to avoid death or in the case of investing, losing one's entire capital. So Thank you very much for your time. Uh, we do appreciate it. And I know it's challenging, especially different times of day, different commitments that we've got, but we do appreciate it. No, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, this is late here, but I'm actually usually writing the blog around now after the kids go to bed and uh, I get an hour to myself. So this is not that weird for me to be. Do you want to just restate um, for everyone what your, where and what your blog is and how if people want to get in contact with you, they can do that? So my blog is breakingthemarket.com. I also have a Twitter account uh, at breakingthemark. Number of characters cut me off from finishing that. You can contact me on Twitter if you like. And there's also a contact box on my blog. It's a great conversation. It's nice to have a more philosophical bent to our discussion. No, this has been fun.